1: This is Kimberly Cook from the Dignity of Women podcast, inviting you to check out my 40-day devotional for single women and devotional for married couples. You can find all that and more, including my downloadable audio files on KimberlyCook.me. To the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Mary Lenneberg. Mary is a full-time author and Catholic speaker who has given keynotes and conferences across the country. In her book Be Brave in the Scared, Mary tells the heart-rending story of how caring for her severely disabled daughter affected her self-image, her marriage, her family life, and her faith. Mary's writing has appeared in various books and publications. When she's not speaking, Mary serves her home parish as catechist, sacristan, and extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. She and her husband, Jerry, live in Fairfax, Virginia with their son, Jonathan. Their daughter, Courtney, passed away in 2014. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Thank you so much for having me, really Mary, I want to ask you, first of all... About your marriage, because it was a big focal point for you in the book. And I think a lot of people can relate to that openness that you have with your readers in your relationship with your husband, Jerry. You have a marriage that has somehow weathered the darkest storms, including pornography, addictions, and ultimately the loss of a child. The thing I want to learn most from you after reading Be Brave in the Scared is how to train ourselves in simple moments of stress so that we can trust ourselves to God's care when a tidal wave hits.
2: Oh gosh, Jesus, I trust in you. I mean, I think for us, we came up with after we figured out what was wrong, you know, we entered our marriage as two people who felt unworthy of love. And we didn't realize that when we entered into our marriage. Uh, He was cute. He thought I was cute. We fell in love and got married. I was 20. He was 23. I was from a large Catholic family. He was from a small Lutheran family. But he had every attribute that I was looking for in someone to love. He was courageous and strong and honorable. And he made me laugh. If you were to ask him, I think the last time I did ask him, he said I was passionate and a woman of deep faith and I loved kids and I loved him. You know, I made him feel strong and so we brought that to our marriage. And then as life moved on and we had children, we had miscarriages first and then we had Jonathan, another miscarriage, we had Courtney, and then everything with Courtney that went wrong. Courtney was like our earthquake in our marriage. You know, you're driving down the road. that's newly paved. Everything looks beautiful. It's a smooth ride, no potholes. And then an earthquake happens and the pavement cracks and there's sinkholes and trees collapse on it. You know, the sewer line breaks, the water line breaks, and it's just everything comes bubbling up to the surface. And I think that's what happens in marriage when there's a crisis. And for us, our crisis was Courtney and what it brought to the surface of our marriage was everything that we refused to deal with. We had seen, I think we both knew there were issues and things were not as we wanted them to be, but we didn't want to, we didn't want to look at it because we had to save our daughter. And then, you know, there comes moments of quiet and peace where she's being cared for, Jonathan's being cared for. And all of a sudden you're looking at the destruction of your life. Mm. And we vowed to one another to stay on the battlefield, to fight for one another and to fight for our family. We had been shown how to do that by both of our parents. They had very different marriages. Neither marriage was perfect, but they both remained in them and fought for them. Hmm. And so when I discovered his addiction to pornography, um, I didn't really deal with it well in the beginning. Actually, I felt like I had nothing to offer because I was knee deep in my addiction to food. Uh, he had married a woman that was five foot ten and 135 pounds, and now he was living with a woman that was almost 300 pounds. Mm. And so my body had undergone this huge shift. And then we had Courtney and everything that came with her, with her disability and her seizures. And then Jonathan was being set aside because there was constant crisis with Courtney, and I was dealing with food, you know, just to numb the feelings. My father was a functional alcoholic till I was 19, and I didn't drink but I could eat. And so that was my choice. And for Jerry, it was emotional distance. It was, let's look at what the world thinks is perfect. Um, I can find what I need there. And I I don't have to look to this marriage for what I need. I I can find it elsewhere without quote unquote, leaving the marriage. So I entered into that addiction with him for almost four years. And uh, finally one night, as I write about in the book, I just, I couldn't do it. I had eaten two whole pounds of brownies, nine by 13 pounds of brownies. I had made three, I'd eaten two. I was sick to my stomach. We had just gotten home two days or three days prior from Courtney, another stay in the hospital with Courtney. Jonathan um, had gotten kicked out of preschool for biting and um, I just, I couldn't compete with what was on a computer screen. I was never gonna be that woman. And so I think in my own way, I had just given up. I was laying on the bathroom floor and trying to make myself vomit. I I could never really do it. I only think I did it once or twice in my whole life. And I just was so ill and that's where Jerry found me. And I I just was crying and I was at my wits end and I said, I can't can't do this anymore. I cannot live this life. I can't hide anymore. I can't hide in a brownie. You can't hide behind a computer screen. We can't say that this is normal. Our family is broken. Our marriage is broken. And you have a choice to make. You either are gonna choose us and that's me right now in the middle with the mess. And I choose you in the middle of the mess. And we're going to fight for this. Or I'm packing the kids up and, you know, I'm leaving. I'm going to mom and dad's or, or you can leave. Right. But right now in this moment, we have to decide. And I've always been kind of a <laughs> uh, love it or leave it person. I'm all in <laughs> or I'm all out. You know, I don't do half measures with addiction or with anything else. And um, he knew that about me. I got up and I took a shower and I, I didn't even let him answer in that moment you know and he was very adamant within a very short period of time that night he's like no i'd never given him an ultimatum and he looked at me and he goes i choose you i choose this family wow and um it was i think one of the bravest moments of his life i know of mine and of our marriage That's
1: beautiful that you could say bravery. I don't think a lot of people would see that in themselves as brave because they feel so broken and steeped in sin that just saying, I choose you or I choose to fight doesn't feel brave. But for you to recognize that in him and him to recognize that in you, I think is an amazing starting point.
2: Well, I think we knew that it wasn't going to be easy. I mean, we weren't stupid. You know, (laughs) you, you come to this place with all of the shame and the sin and the garbage that you dragged in those doors from the very first I do, you know, we brought our past and all of that with us. And we hadn't dealt with things from our childhood and our families of origin. And we were just piling it on. And um, to see strength in a moment of pure weakness is something I remember my father doing. Like I said, he was an alcoholic till I was 19, And I remember him having, after some really bad situation had happened, and he had to make a choice. You know, was he going to get sober or not? Was he going to choose his his marriage, his family or not? And um, he knew he was the only one that could make that decision. And I remember watching him, I was 19, 20 years old, right before I got married, go through AA. I remember watching him take ownership for his own issues in life. And I remembered that. And then, At this time in my own marriage, my father was going through chemotherapy and treatment for cancer due to exposure to Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So he was fighting a battle and he was showing me how to be brave. My mother showed me a different type of bravery because she stayed and she loved and she remained and she, you know, didn't leave him. She fought every day for him and for her marriage and for her family. So she showed me a different side of that with Jerry's parents it was a it was a, yet a different turn of bravery and courage in facing the obstacles that they had to face in their marriage so we were surrounded by people that were brave and the scared but we did i didn't recognize it and call it that i could use the word courage i could use the word bravery but no i still hadn't acknowledged the fear and the broken because i wasn't ready yet i knew we had to fix it i knew we had to choose each other in order to fix it and I was ready to fight for it. I wasn't quite sure how that was all going to happen, uh, but I was ready to do it. And and so was he. And so that began a seven, gosh, seven years, 10 years, I'm not even sure, journey.
1: You talk about the tidal wave, how that kind of hits. And first there was the paved road and everything Seemed great until the earthquake. And I think for a lot of us in this generation and the past generation, even, there's been such an element of comfort for most of us. We haven't lived through a depression. We haven't lived through war where it's been right in our face. It's been overseas. Mm -hmm. It's been, you know, it hasn't really affected our, our wealth as a nation and things like that. And so we've had this relative comfort. And if you haven't experienced something where like in your case, having a severely disabled child or someone having the loss of a child or any of these things, if it doesn't hit directly, you do have this sense of looking at things with such a skewed perspective, like dinner's burnt. Oh, everything's terrible. This is the worst, you know, and just little things happen and it's like your life is over or you're so mad how could this go wrong and you're angry at God and sometimes when you look back at some of the things in your past that you were so angry at God about they seem ridiculously petty When you do have one of those situations where it's a tidal wave, you realize how uncharitable you were or how warped your perspective was because you didn't really have an experience that brought about what it was to truly suffer and be brave, I guess. That's more or less how I see things a lot, even in my own life, that I've been so fortunate to not have to suffer gigantic struggles, but in the midst of that, I also noticed that when small things go wrong, I tend to sometimes blow that out of proportion. And so that really resonated with me in your book when you talked about choosing those simple moments of stress and being able to overcome them day by day, Jesus, I trust in you. Because there will be moments in all of our lives when we will suffer the loss of loved ones, tremendous moments of suffering and struggle. And if we don't start building that up in little moments of our day, in little challenges, we'll never be able to weather that storm when it comes.
2: Well, that's why he gives them to us. You know, everybody's going to have a catastrophe of gargantuan proportions, but it's not when your washing machine breaks, right? You know, it's, we all will struggle. It's biblical. It's in Acts. We will all struggle. We will have trials and tribulations before we enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's in God's word. You know, it's just our response to that. What is our response to the catastrophe? What is our response to the trial and the tribulation? What is our response to the hardship? And what I was learning at that point in my marriage and in my life was, I was a drama queen and I was like the character in gone with the wind. You know, Mm -hmm. I would be on my fainting couch going, (laughs) no, no, I can't handle this anymore. And it was just getting started. I mean, I didn't even know what I was talking about at that point. Um, You know, I was just generally bitching, whining and moaning (laughs) that life was hard. I got lazy. You know, we we tend to get lazy in our spiritual lives, in our physical lives, and we forget how to fight. And things kind of stay calm and there's no agitation in our life. And you're like, oh, this is lovely. And then wham, something comes. And we either stand in ready, prepared for it, or we are drowning. And um, at that point, I was drowning. And I thought it was all over and I just needed to know, was I going to be in a marriage or was I not? You know, I needed to, I was at a fork in the road that night and I needed to know, am I turning right or am I turning left? And the only person that could answer that was Jerry. And fortunately, you know, he chose us. He didn't have to, he could have made a different choice. I praise God for his ability to see clearly or sort of clearly at that (laughs) time, you know, that we were worth fighting for and that he was worth fighting for. Because that's the thing about marriage is you're not in it alone. You know, it's not just about me. He's my path to sanctification and I'm his path to sanctification. And we don't get to heaven without each other. And I think we sort of knew that, but we didn't know how to say it. And so that night we kind of woke up the next morning and nothing had changed in our life. I mean, I still weighed a billion, you know, I was heavy and he still had all the stress on him to be the... Provider, Courtney, was still having seizures. Jonathan was still dealing with his emotional turmoil. Nothing had changed, and yet it felt like everything had shifted. And so we began to do the hard work. We sought counsel. We sought marriage mentoring. We went to our parents quietly. You know, he would talk about things with his dad. I would talk with my parents. I mean, we just began to build a tribe around us of people that were 10 years, 20 years down the road mm-hmm. that had been through some stuff. And, you know, they were open to answering our questions. And marriage counseling is not for the weak of heart. Right. And you have to be willing to drop your ego at the door and listen to some really, really hard things about yourself. And, you know, I am very self-involved and uh, very selfish. And uh, I do not take correction or direction well. I, it's just, I just never have. I take everything as a personal criticism. And so I couldn't do that anymore. And I had to figure out how to take that kind of direction. And thankfully, that's what a counselor is for. They're that uninvolved third party that can see the whole picture where you're kind of mired down in your own emotion. And so they, you know, we went through a few different counselors and they each gave us different tools to begin that conversation I started going to Overeaters Anonymous and Weight Watchers to begin to deal with that particular part of the addiction. And Jerry thought uh, there was no therapy for porn addiction in, you know, 1992, 1993. At that point, psychologists were even calling it normal, mm. a normal part of a male's life. So he had, and he was in the military, which is, it's rampant in the military. Right. And so he really had to fight the good fight with the very few good wow. men we were willing to pray with him and talk with him and share their own journeys, you know, sometimes not with porn addiction, but with other issues. It was a long, long journey, but that started there. And then once we began to deal with the issues within our marriage, we had space then to handle Courtney's situation a little bit better and begin to help our son with what he was dealing with as the only sibling of the disabled sister.
1: How many years was Courtney with you?
2: She was with us for 22 years. 22
1: years. Okay. So at
2: this point, she was two years old when all of this sort of unraveled.
1: You have an amazing quote in the book. It's a toxic mixture of fear and pride. Pride that you can do everything on your own power and fear that you will step off the cliff and never stop falling. And I think you have a common theme throughout your daughter, Courtney's 22 years of life, which is something many of us can relate to not trusting anyone else to do things for us despite the overwhelm and feelings of guilt and denial when decisions we make fail. You encountered this when an experimental drug compounded Courtney's health condition, when your quote-unquote normal son Jonathan got kicked out of preschool, and when your marriage was on the rocks. So what advice would you give yourself during those years now looking back?
2: Oh my gosh.
1: Uh, First of all, you know, um, sit down
2: and be quiet. Sit down and be quiet. You, You don't know everything you think you know. I was so afraid to be wrong and to fail that I just would not ask for help. And failure is a part of life and being wrong is part of being human. And that is where we learn. We learn in those moments of failure in those humiliating moments where we get it wrong. And God shows up and says, okay, well, that wasn't really what I wanted you to do, but here's what we're going to do and how we're going to work with it. So the advice I would give myself then, knowing what I know now, is to start first with myself. I wasn't a very good Catholic at the time. I did not have a personal relationship with the Lord. I was not reading scripture. I was going to Sunday mass because we went to the same parish my parents did and you just didn't miss Sunday mass. <laughs> I was not willing to deal with the consequences you'd get of that. A phone so, call. <laughs> that's right. So you checked that off the list. You know, I was a checking it off the list kind of girl at the time. And it was my first Bible study experience about mm, 2 months after that moment in the bathroom where I was invited to a study, a mom's group study at the parish we were attending. And um, that began a journey for me to understand who I was as a daughter of the king. And I had women around me who were authentic before the word authentic ever became a catchphrase. (laughs) Um, You know, they were living openly and honestly, you know, they weren't hiding the hardness of their marriages or what they were struggling with in their life. They were just bringing it constantly to God, constantly, you right. know, like they would bring it to the foot of the cross and actually leave it there. And I was witnessing this over the course of the next year to two years while we were still there in that particular duty station. And, and I watched the change in them um, over time. And I watched the edges soften and I watched the patience come and the forgiveness come. And I wanted that for myself and it wasn't until I let go of the control and began to trust God in very small ways, you know, to be patient with myself when I would lose my temper and say, okay, that wasn't the best choice you could have made. Let's try again. You know, I kind of went back to the whole Alcoholics Anonymous rules, you know, if it's a bad day, then you start your day again. Mm. It's never too late in the day to start again. Right. And so I tried to do that, and I tried to put habits into my life that would help me do that, and that was the first time I began to read scripture, first time I ever exercised, physically exercised, to try and take care of the body God had given me, because I had a child who couldn't walk and couldn't talk, and her physical care would grow in demand exponentially over the next two decades. And I knew that. I knew that that was going to come, and so I had to take care of me. And I'd never put myself on any list. I was always last in line. And so I began to fight for myself.
1: Well, that's a real testament to inviting others to women's groups and scripture studies. You know, you always think that if these people are at Sunday Mass, you know, they get the bulletin, they can sign up for these things. They're Catholic. They know how to find their way into these groups. So that's a real testimony sometimes that the person just needs a nudge or an invitation, just that open door. And to see what that did with you joining that Bible study, how much it helped in taking those small steps, just encouraging you to work on yourself, you know, and, and to read scripture and to develop a personal relationship with the Lord. I think that's everything
2: comes with personal invitation because it's all about relationship. You know, I wanted what they had, and I didn't know what it was. And I felt seen. I felt seen for the first time and known in a way that I'd never felt before. Like, they wanted to be around me. They invited me into that group. And I just thought, okay, well, nobody's really ever asked me. Okay, I'm certainly not going to do it myself. I knew that. I have learned since then that I am a team player. I like to be on a team. I'm highly motivated by others. I'm not necessarily internally motivated myself. So I learned that about myself, that I always did much better when I was kind of in a team mode. And that's where I learned that was during that two-year time with that particular Bible study, because I could encourage other people and it didn't feel fake to me. I entered into intercessory prayer in a way that I didn't even know you could. And that felt good to me that I could take the trials I was going through myself and I could enter into that whole idea of redemptive suffering, which I'd only been thrown at, you know, offer it up and name it, you know, with the nuns when I was Mm -hmm. going to Catholic Mm -hmm. school, I just, they would hit you with that. And you're just like, Oh, whatever. I mean, I actually learned how to live that. And it was through the example of these women taking me by the hand and being able to sit with me in really hard season. They weren't afraid of Courtney and her seizures or Jonathan and his and his outbursts. And they just took us in as we were. And right. it was a true gift of community.
1: You talk about how you found both comfort and punishment for yourself in food and overeating. This was a constant escape for feeling that you weren't enough. Yeah. Many adults struggle with their identity being wrapped up in being a spouse and a parent. And when those relationships are weak or when they feel that They are weak and they've failed at life, basically, if those aren't working out the way they had anticipated or thought they would. How do we give ourselves entirely to our loved ones and still have an individual identity? And how do we stop running to vices for comfort? Because I think a lot of people do struggle with wanting to give to their family, but also not wanting to lose themselves in just being mom to so-and-so or wife to so-and-so and no right. longer marry or whoever. My mom used to tell me all the time, if you don't love yourself, then how can you love another?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't take care of ourselves and put everything in right perspective, then we are not giving our very best to our family. So I cannot be the best wife and the best mother unless I have my prayer time, you know, unless I go for that walk, unless I eat good nourishing food. And when I need to talk to somebody, I go and I talk to somebody. Now that gets difficult when there's crisis mode, which I pretty much lived in for 22 years. It becomes very challenging. You know, who's going to watch Courtney so I can go talk to someone who's going to go to the grocery store because all I have left are stale potato chips. It was a constant conversation in my mind and a constant negotiation in my life to try and do the best that I could with what I had. What I tell people now is that if you don't take care of you, if you don't go to your Reader's Anonymous meeting or your AA meeting or your Bible study or your whatever it is that you are finding that fruit from, that you're finding that peace in then you're not giving your very best to the family that God has made for you. And so with spouses, you know, a lot of the times one is home and one is out working in the world. You know, there's schedules to consider. There's travel to consider. uh, Finances are always a consideration. All these different things, all these different qualifiers that we have to look at and say, oh, gosh, I, I can't do that because of this. And we can make a ton of excuses but in the end it's the choice to honor our bodies, it's the choice to honor our God, it's the choice to honor our marriage and honor our parenthood and our vocation that will lead us to that peace and it's not going to be perfect. We have a lot of expectations on what we think life should look like and sound like and feel like and when you bring expectations into the mix You are setting yourself up for future disappointment. I'm not talking about goals that you wish to achieve or things like that. I'm talking about expectations of how somebody else is supposed to behave or they're supposed to react or they're supposed to provide. I learned very quickly that I had to let go of my expectations and trust in God's provision in pretty much every aspect of my life. And when I would start to pull that provision back, I would start to rely on myself more than I was relying on God. That's when things went sideways. Right. And it's still that way today. It is still that way today. When I do not spend that time in the word, when I do not go for that walk, when I do not call that girlfriend up and say, hey, you want to get coffee and make that communal connection, things go sideways. And I know that about myself. And yet still, I'm still learning the lesson. I still have to be reminded that If I don't take care of my mental health, of my physical health, of my heart health, of my spiritual health, then I'm not going to be the best person that Jerry needs or Jonathan needs in their life.
1: Sometimes we also are so determined to look good on the outside. And I think (laughs) you gave a really good example when you talked about how you were so determined to stay in that 20 percent. Of couples with a severely disabled child who did not divorce, that you allowed yourself even to enter into viewing pornography with your husband, Jerry, and even as you said, allowed Satan to enter our marriage bed. So, how did that motivation through fear, which many of us unfortunately are motivated through fear or how we're going to look on the outside if this perfect marriage, maybe in other people's eyes, comes crashing down or if they find out that we're really not as perfect as they think we are or holy or any other number of things, how did that motivation through fear affect your marriage and how you saw yourselves and one another?
2: Well, first of all, fear is a liar, and fear comes from Satan himself. When you marry fear and shame, you get catastrophe and disaster, and that's what a lot of people try to hide. They don't want you to see their fear they don't want you to see the actuality of their circumstance. And so they will hide and hiding never did anyone any good. When they say the truth shall set you free, they truly mean the truth shall set mm-hmm. you free. You have to be okay with being alone. And when I mean alone, I mean, you know, depending on the state of your marriage and where you are in counsel, and if there needs to be separation, it just depends on where you are in that healing process. This is where the whole idea of authentic friendship comes in to find people who meet you exactly where you are, who see you and the truth of you and still stay with you and still honor that. At that point in our life, we had two friends who saw us and loved us. And it didn't matter that we felt like total failures and we were carrying around big buckets of shame. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they knew us and they loved us and they cared about us. And so they stepped in as kind of mentors, and really took us both by the hand, and we found the right people to help us within our marriage. I found the right people within my own addiction. Jerry found the right people through them, but we have to be okay with being alone, and when I say alone, I don't mean, you know, just alone in your home. I mean, you have to be okay with being alone and being quiet and listening for the still small voice of God. You have to be okay with where you are and who you are, when you look around in the world and all you're seeing is perfection and that voice of shame kind of whispers into your heart, that's not coming from God. Right.
1: We're in a Pinterest
2: world right now. Exactly. You know, everybody wants perfect right now and you're not going to get perfect. Perfect doesn't exist. It existed once and his name was Jesus Christ. (laughs) It will never exist again, you know, um, until he comes back or until we're in heaven. So perfect is just, it's, you got to let that go. You have to be okay with failure. You have to be okay with being alone. You have to be okay with somebody else saying to you where you are in your life right now, is too much for me and I can't do this. Right. And it's going to hurt, but it is so much better to not have to play the game than it is to let that friendship go because friendships sometimes come in for a season And leave. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. God provides for that. It's just a matter of really learning who you are. I had to learn that I was the daughter of the king. I had to learn that I am enough right now in this moment with my past and with my future, that I am still loved totally and completely by God who created me in His image and likeness. I had to receive that. I had to learn how to receive that. When you have felt unworthy and stupid and not strong enough and not pretty enough and just fill in the enough for so long and you're so broken, it takes some time to rebuild that relationship or to build it to begin with, with God. It takes time to rebuild a marriage, to build up those trust muscles. And the devil loves to step on the bruise. Mm -hmm. He loves to remind us, you know, remember that. Do you remember this? Because the yeah. the thing with pornography is it's not like alcoholism. With an alcoholic or even as with a food addict, you can remove yourself from the refrigerator. You can remove yourself from the alcohol. Porn stays with you 24-7. The images that you have taken into your mind, you can recall at the drop of a hat 30 years later. Hmm. It never is removed from your life. Now, that image, I may have an image that comes up in my mind. I don't have to pay attention to that image. Right. I say, I reject you, Satan, and get out of my head. Right. You know, and that is not a sin. We are tempted all the time, and I had to learn that because what I thought was happening in the beginning when I was moving toward this this healing journey was every time those images was flashing in my brain, I thought, oh, I've sinned again. No, because I have not given in to what that image would usually lead me to. Right. I have not given in to the action. But the devil loves to step on the bruise, and he loves to remind both Jerry and myself that he was once in charge
1: of this marriage. Well, I think it's so beautiful how you talk about how you moved past the guilt, the shame, and the hurt upon hurt with forgiveness. Because yes. many of us don't look at our spouse as our path to God, as you said. But you and Jerry learned that that was exactly the case and that the only way to undo that hardness of hearts that you guys had created for yourselves was through Forgiveness. And you said in the book that it's not only a gift to the other person, but it's very much a gift to yourself that freedom when you're yeah. able to forgive. And really, I think when you do get so steeped in sin and hurt and whatever the case in marriage or friendship or relationship that becomes so steeped in sin. And like you said, the devil kind of takes the reins for a while the only way you can move past that is going to be a great level of forgiveness to yourself and the other person. Well, unforgiveness, so to hold that anger
2: and mistrust to not forgive only rots the vessel in which it remains. The only person I was hurting with my unforgiveness, well, really there are two of us, Jerry and myself, but it was more hurtful to me, doing more damage to my heart and my soul to hang on to that anger and to hang on to the words that had been said, the images that had been viewed, really kind of almost abuse that had happened with which we we both had given permission to the other to do. We had to forgive or else there was no moving forward. You cannot move forward and heal without letting go of that. And the only way to let go of all of that is to truly forgive the other person. And we still do it to this day. Mm. When those bruises are stepped on, when we're hurt or we're tired or things are overwhelming and that bruise gets stepped on and you say something or a word happens or you're entering into an intimate time together and it just feels a little off. We stop, you know, we stop, we pray. St. Michael protects our marriage bed to this day. St. Mary Magdalene stands at the ready. St. Dymphna is there with us. We invoke these saints and ask to keep our mind clear, our hearts pure, and to protect our marriage bed because that's the most intimate place that we give our love to one another fully and freely. It's the most intimate embrace that can take place within a marriage. And when damage has been done to that, when you have fallen into areas of hurtfulness in that intimacy, once it is healed and it is restored and it is redeemed, you protect it with all you have. And we do that. But that doesn't mean that we don't sometimes still, sometimes we are still unkind to one another. Sometimes we're still impatient with each other. And sometimes... You know, we have to stop and say, wait a minute, where is this coming from? What is the root of it? Because there's always a root. Every time you're angry to every time you feel hardness of heart, to every time you feel unforgiveness, there is a root there. There is something that has been said or done that needs forgiveness, that needs healing. And so you have to figure out what are the triggers? What are the words? Look, like, there are certain things we do not say to one another.
1: Mm, that's good to as know. As a
2: form of protection. I don't use certain words in intimate situations. I don't call him out in a certain way because I know if I use a word or a phrase, he will look at me and I'll be like, oh, that was a bad Mm. choice. You know, it triggered. And I see the pain right there. Ooh, we're right back in that moment Mm. because we're just two people trying to figure it out and get it. Okay. You know, to get it right because I love him and I cannot imagine my life without him. And, I think he would say the same thing.
1: <laughs> but um,
2: you know, I I've given thirty three years of my life, thirty one in marriage, to walk beside him, right. and um, we fought very hard for where we are now, and we will continue to fight the good fight. And I think what I would say to anyone else who's in a hard season, no matter what is at the root of that season, whether it be woundedness or addiction or crisis within family or whatever, depression, anxiety, joblessness, whatever that is. But God still remains, even though I could not feel him, I could not hear him, I could not see him. That doesn't mean he wasn't there the entire time. He never, ever left my side, and he will not leave my side, ever. But again, I had to recognize where he was. I had to recognize his voice. I had to learn to seek it. I had to learn to hear what it sounds like on my heart. And in order to do that, you have to clear that highway of junk. You have to go to confession, get a spiritual director if that's possible, get rid of it's like cleaning out the attic, you know, Mm. all the boxes (laughs) and the grime and the cobwebs and the corners that you got to take a toothbrush to to get it off. You've got to clean it all out. And then you have to be okay with it being clean. You have to be okay with not carrying all of that with you all the time. See, a lot of people, they get rid of it and then they freak out because they're in such a new place. They're not carrying this guilt. They're not carrying the shame or this unforgiveness. Mm. And they look around and they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And so they pick it back up again.
1: Right. They don't know
2: what to do without it.
1: They don't know what to do
2: without it. So you have to have a plan of what are you going to fill that spot with? If you remove the boulder in the middle of your chest that you've been carrying around and learned to breathe around, you take it out, you allow God to heal it, what are you left with? You're left with a gaping wound that's going to seep and it's going to take a heck of a long time to heal. And so what is your plan for that healing? Are you seeking direction? What are you seeking in your prayer life? Who have you surrounded yourself with to cheer you on when you get tired and overwhelmed and want to pick that shame bucket back up again? Go in with a plan. Right. And that is going to help you realize it's kind of like when I wrote this book, my editor Jamie was so sweet. She said, Mary... I truly believe this book will be a path to freedom for you. And I just kind of scoffed and I thought, no, I've already let all that stuff go. <laughs> I've walked in forgiveness. I've, you know, I'm healed. And I'm telling you what, writing that book was like reliving it all again. And there were so many areas where I didn't realize I was still hanging on to things. Right. When we wrote that chapter, and Jerry really did sit with me and write it with me. When we wrote the chapter five on pornography, to reveal that about yourself and your marriage, to to the in world place, <laughs> you know all out there and will be on somebody's shelf for the next 20 years <laughs> you know they can pick that up at any time and know that about us we had to be in a place where it was okay that you know that about us and what got us to that place was not only our own healing within our own marriage but watching these young couples enter into marriage and fight so hard and not know what to do next because marriage is challenging You have two independent people that are coming together to create a home and create new life. And, you know, you're not the same person. You're going to annoy the baloney out of the other one (laughs) and you're going to hurt them and and you're going to have bad days. And I think we do ourselves and the next generation a disservice if we don't talk honestly about, you know, sometimes your husband's going to be a jerk and sometimes you're going to be even worse. (laughs) But God is good and he created him for you and you for him. And so when you take it to him and you take it to the cross again and again and again, and you offer it back up to him as gift and you leave it there, that amazing things can happen. I never imagined it would be this good. I never imagined it would be this sweet. And I'm telling you that 31 years is better than three and it's better than 13 and it's better than 23.
1: That's good to hear talk about surrender because the beautiful reprieve of your story is when you hand it over to God. But I think you're right in saying that we are not wired for acceptance. We want a pill, a quick fix, a silver bullet to make things better instantly. But acceptance is a word that both you and Jerry heard separately at Lord's France when you took Courtney, there, and yet you said life didn't get easier for you when you accepted, but healing began and life became richer and more filled with love and meaning. How did you find meaning in accepting your suffering, and how is it possible to say all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose? When you still walked through such a great suffering, such a great loss of your daughter after many, many years of struggle and care, how is it still possible for you and Jerry to proclaim that all things work for the good for those who love God?
2: Well, first of all, as it says in the book of Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Life is hard. Life is hard. Joy is a choice and joy is different than happiness. And to me, that was the key in the acceptance and the surrender. When I knew that I could be a woman of joy, filled with joy, even if I was in the midst of grieving of great crisis or whatever it was at the time, because happiness depends on somebody else. I have to rely on you for my happiness. And if I have to rely on you for my happiness, because it's all external, happiness is external, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to be disappointed because you're going to do something that's going to really irritate me. And then I'm not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. But joy is a choice and joy comes from the knowledge that I am the daughter of the king that I am God's chosen one That I was made in his image and likeness and that I have a mission to do and only I can do that mission Nobody else can do that for me. I look at it sort of like exercise if I want to lose 10 pounds Then by scientific fact certain things have to happen. I cannot eat ice cream every night Mm -hmm. I have to sweat I have to move my body. You know, I mean, there are certain things we know. It's just logic. It's natural law of what you have to do in order to meet that goal. Well, the same thing in the spiritual life. If I want to know more about God, if I want to have joy in my life, then I need to be able to let go and accept that it's not going to be perfect, that it's not going to be easy. So how do we do that? Well, as Catholics, we do that through redemptive suffering. It means all the suffering that I have gone through in my life, all the suffering Courtney went through, all the suffering Jerry goes through. When I offer it up to Our Lady to hold, to our Lord, when I say, Kim is really having a bad day today, Lord. I have to scrub the toilets. I'm going to offer this time up. I'm going to sing praise songs. I'm going to pray the rosary. And that time's for Kim to help her with her day. That's called redemptive suffering. It means God is taking my suffering and my hardship in that moment. And he's passing it over to your lane to say, you know what? Somebody's praying for you. And all of a sudden, I might get a text from you three hours later that says, the afternoon got better. Thank you. Right. And you had no idea I was praying for you. You had no idea I was even doing anything. That's It was the toilets. <laughs> that's, that's because <laughs> that's it, a great know, sacrifice. Prayer, it, prayer stands outside of time, you know? God knows, our lady knows, and it's just up to us to enter into it. You know, we have the lives of the saints as great examples. We have to be a saint to be in heaven. Well, you should read some of the lives of the saints. And then you think, you know what? I'll scrub those toilets because it's not St. Lawrence who's being grilled alive, you know, or it's not St. Therese who was so sensitive to her environment that even the clacking of the nun's rosary beads in the pew ahead of her in the chapel would have her break out into a sweat, you know, and she would offer up that suffering and that uncomfortableness Mm. for the glory of God. I learned how to offer it up and name it. And it became easier. Think of it as labor with a baby. Here you are, you're in active labor. It's painful. You're sweating. Your body is feels like it's splitting in two. And yet, praise God, please, that it would be this way. At the end of that time of suffering, what happens? You hold this beautiful miracle, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I know that that doesn't always happen. I know that bad things happen. There is death in this world. There is sickness in this world because there is sin in this world. But God allows what he allows so that we might know who he is. I would never have known what I was capable of. I would never have seen our disabled community and the way that I see them now unless I had walked through all of that with my daughter.
1: That's beautiful. You know, so powerful. It's such an act of praise when people that have suffered so greatly the loss of a child in your case and are able to proclaim that all things work for good for those who love God. That is so powerful. It's, it's the truth, or else it wouldn't be in scripture
2: if it wasn't true. But it is the truth. Think about Courtney's life, okay? She, I believe, chose and knew that she was free. She knew what her job was. She knew and accepted it. She found peace with it. And she did it beautifully. For me to live without her is hard. It's very hard. I don't really even have words for it. Grief, you know, when they say, uh, somebody once asked me, Mary, are you over it? Mm. And I just laughed. and <laughs> am like, you never get over it. Grief becomes part of my story. I still miss my dad. My dad died at the age of 63. Mm-hmm. He should still be here, yes. you know. But I miss him. And I pray for him. And I hope that he's walking free in the golden streets of heaven. You know, I feel fairly certain that Courtney is there because she couldn't sin. And she had all of her sacraments. So Mm -hmm. I'm feeling confident that as a mom, my job is to pray my children to heaven. So I got a 50-50 shot that I've got. (laughs) I've got one in the bag. We're good. You know, (laughs) my son laughs all the time and he's like, mom. You know, you know how hard it is to be Courtney's brother? And I'm like, dude, you should be her mother. I mean,
1: come <laughs> on. She's the one that's going to get us there because she's the one that showed us how to love. That's the truth. And she's still showing she's still you guys how to love. She's, she's still, still to- having such an impact, not only on you, but I mean, you talk about in the book, what a great impact she had on the community. Even people that she never even met through your stories, through the blog and everything else while she was still alive. And then now... Her legacy lives on and she's still teaching the rest of us so many lessons through your story and through the book and through you continuing to share that journey.
2: Well, we're all disabled and I don't think anybody really ever looks at themselves that way. We are all disabled people. We are all differently abled than the other. What Courtney and those like Courtney, these special, beautiful souls that God allows us to see what's broken. He allows it to see it on the outside when you and I spend a lifetime trying to hide what's broken. Because what I've learned, one of the greatest lessons Courtney ever taught me was that God shines through those broken parts. He is going to have you minister in a way that you never thought was possible through the very things that used to be your points of shame and points of sin. I can speak truth to a young married couple who might be struggling with pornography in a way that other people cannot because I have walked through the valley of the shadow of Mm. death and I fear no evil because I know who my God is. And I know that what I was taught, what I allowed to happen, what I accepted for myself was a lie. And that when you walk in the freedom and the joy of what God has for you, Satan can't touch you. He's going to try. He's going to fight for you, but he can't touch you because I don't belong to him. I belong to God. And with Courtney, she was never mine. You know, God does not have grandchildren. We all belong to him because mm. we are his creation and we were created out of love. And so he created her for us. She was meant to be my daughter. She was meant to be Jonathan's sister. She was meant to be Jerry's daughter. We all needed each other. We we learned from her. She taught us how to love without condition, without boundaries. She taught us to see broken as beautiful. She taught us to see different as daring and bold and delicate and needing of protection. She taught us that it doesn't matter what you can do. You have inherent dignity given by God the Father,
1: and no one can take that from you. Right. We are like vessels, jars, pottery that has been broken and although we're glued back together there's still cracks and the reason for all of those cracks is so that when the light shines within the cracks it shines through the cracks so that other people can experience that if we didn't have those cracks the light wouldn't be able to shine through
2: no and and nobody
1: who would trust you
2: you know if i think that you're just skipping right along how am i going to come to you and ask you to journey with me we were meant to journey in community We were meant to live in community, and so unless you drop that veil and allow someone to see the brokenness, then isolation happens, and that's the worst thing that can happen to a person. Our greatest desire as humans is to be seen, known, and loved, and so in order to do that, we've gotta drop the pretense. You know, you have to enter into, you know, this is me. I am not perfect, I still struggle, but I love God. I've had many, many blessings in my life, and I choose Him, and I choose Him again, and again, and again.
1: Finally, I just want to address fear because it is something, again, that paralyzes us so often in our life, and you do such a great job of meeting it head-on throughout your journey and sharing that with the readers. Fear of death for ourselves, our loved ones, and especially our children can be so intense. It's paralyzing. You talk about overcoming that fear after the loss of Courtney in December 2014 and the many lessons her death taught you. For instance, love is all that matters, God never abandons us, and how we all have a purpose. How do you approach the concept of death differently now?
2: Oh, death does not win. Death does not win. The closest place I can be to my daughter is at mass. And the reason why is because she stands behind the veil. Wherever our Lord is, the saints and the angels and the holy men and women are there praising. So when I go to Mass, it's the closest place I can be to her. It's a totally different way of looking at the sacraments. I know that death does not win. Am I afraid to die? I suppose there is some concern over the actual process of dying. (laughs) Um, But am I afraid of death? No, I'm not afraid of that anymore because I know that by the grace of God, I mean, I strive to live my life in a way that I remain in a state of grace or I come as close as I can. So that is helpful to me as a Catholic. The sacraments are so healing and restorative to me. But my dad used to say where the title of the book comes from, Be Brave and the Scared, he used to say, you only have to be brave one breath at a time. You only have to be brave one breath at a time. And for Courtney, when she was in a seizure, she would stop breathing. And so you would fight for that breath. And the way I fight now for joy and for peace is to continually surrender, to honor the grief when it comes, because when you grieve, that just means you loved and you loved big and you loved well. So grieving is natural and it's normal and it's beautiful. You meet it and you sit with it as long as you need to sit with it and you allow it to wash over you, you have the memories and you have the pain. And I learned through counseling and through facing addiction that if you don't deal with the pain, it's gonna run you over and you're gonna end up in a worse place than you possibly could have imagined. And so I deal with the pain. I deal with the loss of the physical presence that she was in our lives. And the fact that I sit in a chair and she's not curled up in my lap with her head over my heart. That's hard, it's Mm -hmm. hard. But you know what, Our Lady, Mama Mary knew, she knew what it was like to watch her son suffer, to watch him take his last breath, to hold him one last time. And so when it gets really dark, which it can do, you know, I'm, I'm a passionate woman. And so I have <laughs> deep, deep feels. And when they come, you know, I sit with her. We have a beautiful statue of the Pieta at St. Mary of Sars, which is where I worship. I love that statue. I love the Pieta because it is her total surrender to God's plan. It is Mary's total surrender. Everybody, they're always talking about her fiat, her her yes. And that was so important. This was the final yes. He's mm-hmm. not going to walk with me anymore physically on this earth. I mean, he's ne- he never left her heart. And she came during the Great Dormition, Mission, during the Assumption. He came down and he carried his mama to heaven, body and soul. For me as a mother, to be able to talk to her in that way, to tell her how hard it is, to sit in the grief... And to feel her say to me, I know, I know, sweetie. And then to have her son be present because he knows too. He never left me. He never left Courtney. He's still with her. I visit her grave and I see her smiling face all around our house. And she has never, ever left my heart. And that might sound depressing to some people. But when you've loved with your whole entire life and then God, chooses the time and the place for one chapter of that love story to end and a new chapter to begin, unless you want to sit in desolation and pain for the remainder of your life, unless you want to choose that for yourself, then you have to get up and you have to rise from the ashes and you have to rely on God's strength and his wisdom to walk with you. I can't do it on my own. It's not possible. He has to do it. He takes me by the hand and says, come on, Mary, we're going to do this today you and me, we're going to do this. It's going to be okay. And it is. Now I have the great privilege of sitting with other families that have walked through the same thing, to be able to be in the company of somebody else who has suffered such a devastating loss and to be able to say to them with truth that I do understand. And it really will be as okay as okay can be in time. And I think as a culture, we rush this idea of death and dying and we want to put a fix on it and we want to take that pill, do the liposuction. We want to avoid the hard work. Mm -hmm. The Hard work is handing over your whole life brick by brick to God because he's the one that gave it to you. And unless you hand it over and you live in a state of surrender with your hands open wide saying, it's yours, Lord. This day is yours. What do you need me to do? Show me how to love today. Who am I loving today? How am I loving them? And it's going to require stretching and it's going to require me to say no to self. And yes to somebody else. And that's hard when you're tired and you're overwhelmed. And you might be in a a season of like that grief feels fresher today than it did yesterday. Or the crisis feels overwhelming or whatever it is. But when we go to him, it doesn't mean the circumstances will change. It means our heart will change because he is transforming our heart. One of the things that is said to me quite often since this book has been published is, wow, Mary, it must be so peaceful to live your life now. You just you've got it all figured out. <laughs> I just laugh because, no, I, I do know what to do. Doesn't mean I always do it. And what I see now in my life I've never seen before is completely unexpected. And so it requires yet another level of surrender. It requires me to let go of expectation again. It requires me to enter into a new season with humility and being able to ask someone like, I really don't know how to do this. Can you help me? I do it quicker and I do it faster than I did in the past, but I still have to do it. It's just a whole new way of looking at the world.
1: Just the fact that you never forget that that smile is always around you and also that you're able to honestly offer that comfort in a way that only someone who's been through it can to another family and to be able to say it gets better. Time will heal if you work through this. God will heal. You'll never forget. It will never be completely pain-free, but... A lot of times when we're going through something, we need desperately somebody who has been through it to be able to look at them several years out and to say it is possible to laugh again eventually. It is. To be happy again eventually.
2: It is survivable. Crisis is survivable. Death is survivable. What I keep in mind at all times is how hard my daughter fought for her life and how mad she would be if we sat down in ours. Mm. If I just sat down and I gave up, that would be so dishonoring Mm. to her. It would spit on her legacy. It just would be so dishonoring to her and to her life. And so I choose to honor her life in any way God calls me to. I choose to honor the struggle and the lessons learned through her being a part of my life. I don't know if Jerry and I would still be married without Courtney. I don't know that because she was something we could fight for together. Mm. She was the center of our team. You know, we were team Lenneberg, team Courtney. (laughs) She kept us together as we worked and walked through. Now, some of that in the beginning was pure pride, as we talked about before, but pride can't withstand over time. Surrender and acceptance will work its way through. Humility will win out, but she gave us something to fight for that we were on equal footing with one another She's remained with us as we walked through all of that. And as we came to this place of forgiveness and healing and God brought her home when everything she needed to do had been done and he brought her home in peace and he brought her home on the feast of St. John, the beloved mm. who was the apostle that never suffered. That was God's favored one, his closest, the one he gave his mother to, to care for. She was born on the St. Helena of the Cross. So here is this child who her entire life, she stood at the foot of the cross. And she did as her beloved had asked her to do. How can I as her mother do no less? And so I do my best. I'm certainly not a saint today, but tomorrow is a new day. And, (laughs) you know, we're going to get up and we're going to try and do it again. And along the way, if I can encourage and if I can pray for If I can intercede in any way, I take that as a great privilege and honor to do so because I know that there comes a time in everyone's life where you actually can't pray. Like there were many times where I just, I didn't have the words. I didn't have the strength. I didn't even know what to say. And I had an army of people saying, we got this. We got you. And they lifted us up. And so now I get to be a part of that army for somebody else. That brings me great joy to be able to do that.
1: Well, Mary, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, and please let us know where we can find your book, Be Brave in the Scared.
2: You can find it uh, at Ave Maria Press, their website, or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. You can actually purchase a signed copy through my own website,
1: com. Excellent. And I highly recommend the book, especially if you are going through anything crisis-oriented or if you just want to learn how to be brave and to be better. So thank you so much, Mary. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. It was a delight. No
0: Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by Have you ever been put on the spot and asked to explain or defend Catholic teaching on sensitive topics such as abortion, same-sex marriage, or the Eucharist? What to Say and How to Say It is a straightforward and practical resource by Brandon Vogt, best-selling and award-winning author of Why I Am Catholic and You Should Be Too. He offers essential tools for articulating even the most contentious aspects of your Catholic faith with clarity and confidence. You can get a copy of this important new book at AveMariaPress.com. Use code TALKFAITH to get 25% off your copy today. Looking for exceptional coffee delivered fresh to your door? We have the answer. Our friends at Grim Bean Coffee produce small-batch artisan coffee using top-tier coffee beans. The coffee is roasted when you order, guaranteeing the freshest coffee possible. Check out Breadbox Roasts, a new line of Catholic-themed coffees, available at www.grimbeancoffee.com forward slash breadboxmedia. Experience coffee like never before.